Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk about all things that are relevant to anesthesia in Australia. If you are a member of the Australian Society of Anesthetists, then you may have noticed that in the past few months that we've been running some communication workshops with Dr. Angia Wojnicki. Well, I'm delighted to say that in this episode, I'm having a bit of a behind-the-scenes chat with her. We chat about Harvard, the Olympics, and her thoughts on being a communication coach. We also talk about what's coming up in the workshops in the coming months, and along the way, Andrea shares with us some tips on communication. Now, early in my specialist career, I attended a leadership workshop, and one of the facilitators said that after people have finished their training, not just in medicine, but in a wide variety of other fields, then most of their ongoing professional development would be in leadership skills, not in the technical area in which they trained. That seemed a bit of a shocking concept to me at the time, but I can say now that that has definitely been true for my career. So we at the ASA are keen to support the professional development of our anaesthetic community. We want to provide opportunities like this podcast and our workshops that are easily accessible and hopefully of interest. At the end of this podcast episode, I'll share with you some more opportunities if you're interested in further developing your leadership skills. Now, I did have the pleasure of recording this podcast whilst I was in Canada recently for the Common Issues Group meeting. It made it great for coordinating time zones with Andrea, but not so great for sound quality. However, what Andrea has to say is gold. All right, let's get into it. Thank you for giving up some time this evening to have a chat with me. It is wonderful to be in your gorgeous country. I'm sorry we couldn't be meeting face-to-face, but a one-hour time difference, I think, is the closest we've ever come. So this is fantastic. Thank you. It's definitely a pleasure to be here and to chat with you. And thank you. Also, we had our first communication workshop, which I heard went really, really well. I'm sorry I couldn't be there. Yeah, you have such a fantastic group of doctors, and honestly, they're enthusiastic and they're keen and I'm sensing a growth mindset and it's really fun. Oh, good. Good to hear. Because I wanted to circle back around and ask how you got into being a communication coach. So the answer is that my background is marketing and it's evolved into interpersonal communication. So I've worked in brand marketing, which I absolutely loved. And then I did my MBA and then I went to Harvard and I did my doctorate. And when I was there, I focused my research on word of mouth, which is interpersonal communication. When consumers talk to other consumers about the restaurant they went to or the fantastic podcast that they listen to. So I was really interested in understanding why people say what they say and specifically why they make recommendations or why they don't make recommendations. And then I became a professor of marketing at the University of Toronto at Rotman School of Management. And I taught MBA students there. And then I did some consulting and then I took Seth Godin's podcasting fellowship. And when I was writing the application form, I said, I'm a marketer, but I'm really more interested in interpersonal communication. And so this podcast would be talk about talk. And I was like, Ooh, that's good. And so I Googled talk about talk and nobody had the trademark secured. So I secured the trademark. I secured the website. And then I started building up my content And then I started doing workshops and now I'm doing a lot of one-on-one coaching and also group online coaching. And I absolutely love it. I'm in my happy place. Was it a deliberate move, do you think, to get into coaching or did that happen organically? 
When I was at the University of Toronto, when you're a professor, you're teaching and then you are also doing research and there's some administrative work, but that's really the two main buckets of what you're doing. And I I have to say, I liked doing the research and I loved the teaching. And becoming professor and then moving into this, have you left academia? Ooh, that is a big question. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. To be honest, I think I have, right? Some people have said, why don't you go back to the university? And I'm thinking, I can make my own calendar here as, you know, the founder of Talk About Talk and I'm creating content. I'm actually doing research for every single podcast episode that I produce and for the workshops that I'm creating. And I'm also learning in terms of case studies from the people that I'm coaching. So I'm still absorbing a ton of information while I'm also coaching individuals and groups. So I guess it's a long answer to say, yes, I've left academia. It raises a really interesting dichotomy that I've been facing of when we do scientific publication, it takes ages. And I've had a little bit of experience publishing papers. But once you get used to the pace of podcasting, the whole world of scientific publication seems really slow. It does. That's a great point. You're reminding me of a conversation that I had with a mentor of mine. She's a also a professor and she's not a coach, but she's a consultant. And she said the great thing about being a faculty member, like being in academia, is that you have these long-term goals that you're working towards in terms of research. But she said, if you like teaching, every day you go in the classroom, you're going to get these endorphin hits. And I think it's actually similar with what I'm doing and maybe what you're doing. We're working on things that are longer term and then also short term, pumping out a podcast or pumping out a newsletter or coaching whatever it is. Yeah. And you get the endorphin hit of people saying, hey, I listened to what your podcast was about. And I even put some of it in place. Know what, Susie? I don't think that I had thought about that explicitly. So thank you for reminding me of that. That's true. I actually do believe that I am making a bigger impact in the world doing what I'm doing now. I heard someone in academia recently saying that when you write an academic paper and you publish it, It's really a group of people that are reading it and they're all citing each other and then publishing and citing and publishing and citing each other. And it's like a merry-go-round and that's the impact. (laughs) She was a bit cynical. So I got off that merry-go-round and now I'm podcasting and coaching and making an impact. Yeah. That to me, that could be a bit of a scary merry-go-round to get off. I mean, you think when you're heading down into these career paths that once you've made professor, that's it. You've got the big title. Was that a big step? How did you go through navigating that? Well, I had a medical issue. So I took a leave of absence. And then when I did the leave of absence, I realized I didn't want to go back, but I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So that's when I started doing some consulting. And the consulting was good, not great. And when I started podcasting and I was started to do research again, I was like, oh, I'm getting closer to my happy place. And then when I combined the content from the podcasts to coaching, I was like, oh my goodness. And like you said, when someone says, I tried what you recommended in this podcast or from the coaching and it really worked and thank you. And I'm like, oh, that is my best day. Would you say you're an entrepreneur now? Susie, you have the best questions. Seriously. I've been thinking about this. I have three degrees in business. Okay. I have a bachelor of commerce. I have an MBA where I majored in strategy. And then I have a doctorate in business administration where I majored in marketing. And in all three of those academic pursuits at those schools, there were many opportunities to take entrepreneur classes. And I I did not take any of them. And I said out loud, I love 
working as a brand manager. I love thinking about strategy, but building a business by myself, I would never do it. And now that is what I'm doing. Talk about talk is growing and it's doing great. And this may be old news to people that have taken entrepreneurship classes, but I think there's two kinds of entrepreneurs. There's people who love starting companies and that's what they do. They start companies, they sell them. They start companies, they sell them. And then there's people like me who have a passion and they build a business around it. And I think it's different. And of course, you have to learn how to scale the business. You have to learn how to grow without growing too fast. But I think it comes from two different places. Mm, Interesting. I just ask that because often when you say to people about becoming an entrepreneur and entrepreneurship, especially medical people, it seems completely daunting to walk off that medical treadmill with six years or have a long at medical school, junior medical years, senior medical years, training, so forth. There's a well-worn path you can take and to jump off it into this expansive land of what is an entrepreneur and an entrepreneurship. Yeah. You know, what you're talking about really is like the sunk cost effect, right? So I had the sunk cost. It took me five years to get through my doctorate at Harvard. And you're talking about the sunk cost of six years of medical school. And that's a lot, but I'm a big believer in really thinking rationally about sunk cost, right? So thinking about why you did what you did, what it gave you today. And then if you're going to be rational about it, you're not going to make your decision about the future based on the past. Lots to think about. I want to go, as we're thinking back for your career, your time at Harvard. And I know you mentioned that you met someone whose work I really love, Amy Edmondson. Yeah. I took an organizational behavior course from her in my second year. She taught us, I can't remember how many students there were in the class. It was small. I think it was like five or maybe six. What a great room to have been in. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall during those classes. I know. I've watched her and heard her since many times on, on YouTube and whenever she's got TED Talks. And she seems down to earth. She did some research for her dissertation where she was identifying what makes high performing teams tick and identified psychological safety. And then she's introduced it to the world, right? She has a platform at Harvard and she's done case studies. And she's also, by the way, examined the phenomenon. I'm sure you know this in many disciplines, including medicine. It's huge in medicine, right? It's interesting that you brought up high performance teams because again, I'm going back, but you have an interesting story about the Olympic Games. So I was a competitive figure skater I would say seriously from the time I was 10 till I was 16. And then when I was 16, I quit, but I didn't want to really quit skate. Like I love skating. I just didn't want to compete because it's pretty intense. So I joined a precision team, which so speaking of teams, it was 24 skaters on the ice at one time and you have this music and someone choreographs it. And then we actually did compete, but it's competition at a different level. And when I was doing that, because I lived in Calgary, I tried out for the closing ceremonies of the 1988 Winter Olympics. There were three scenes in the closing ceremonies. So all the athletes came in first and then the skating show started. And so we brought flags in and everybody wanted Canada. And they asked us to list what our favorite flag would be to carry in. And they said, if you don't get your first choice, we're just going to give you one of the flags that's left over. So I chose the Scottish flag. My maiden name is Campbell and that's Scottish. But then one of the choreographers came up to me and said, I noticed that you've been learning the choreography very quickly and you've been going out of your way to teach it to other skaters because there were hundreds of skaters and we really appreciate this. And do you want to carry Canada in? And I'm like, oh my gosh, yes. So I carried the Canadian flag into the stadium. And it was really cool. The flagpole was a hollow tube with a piece of cord, like a cable that was actually tied. And you 
pushed the cord up and the Canadian flag went into the pole and the Olympic flag came out. So you had two flags, the Canadian flag and then the Olympic flag. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I was a nerd in high school. Oh, weren't we all? So that day I was just high, right? All the world broadcasters like BBC, CBC, ABC, NBC, whatever, all of them were there. And one of them did a close-up of me and my mom let me sleep in the next day. And then I went to school in the afternoon and these kids were like, I saw you. I'm like, yes, you did. <laughs> that is fantastic. Yeah. Wow. So I did used to have it on the bottom of my resume. And many, many times I would go into a job interview and people would say, before we talk about anything, can we talk about the Olympics? And I'd, I'd make it clear. I was not competing. Like I was not competing in the Olympics. I was in the closing ceremonies. It is a pretty high performance thing to do to skate with that many people, to come together. And then if you're a teenager or so at the time. Yeah. Do you find those sorts of experiences useful when you're talking about communication and coaching? Because public speaking is the classic example in those psychological experiments for how do we make people nervous or suddenly get them to speak publicly. So do you find that you can draw anything from moments in your life that come into your communication and coaching work now? Yeah. So. Susie, another fantastic question. By the way, I have a pet peeve when I'm interviewing someone and they say great question because sometimes it's the default. I really mean it. You are asking fantastic (laughs) questions. I'm not just saying that. So one of the most common questions that I have from my communication skills clients, from the executives that I'm coaching, is around avoiding imposter syndrome and getting a boost of confidence when they're feeling nervous, right? And when I look back at my own personal experience, I realized that depending on the context, it went up and down. So when I was 10 years old, I vividly remember competing in my first figure skating competition and not feeling one ounce of nervousness, just getting out there, doing it, nailing it, getting on the podium, right? A couple of years later, I learned nervousness, right? And then we had a sports psychologist help us. And so that was a great experience. And then the Olympics happened. And I remember being nervous because my parents were in the audience, not because there were TV cameras, so then fast forward a couple of years and I'm maybe 24 years old and I'm working as a brand manager and they ask me to give a speech at a national sales meeting. And I'm very, very well prepared for this. And I thought I'd be a little nervous, but I was so incredibly nervous. I was paralyzed. I was sweating. I was shaking. I was incoherent. My boss was like, are you okay, Andrea? And I was like, no, I'm not. And I decided right there and then this is never, ever going to happen again. So I promised myself that I was going to volunteer Every single chance I had, whether it's in a meeting or a presentation, whatever the opportunity was, I was going to volunteer. And also I was going to start collecting hacks or tips for what might work for me to be less nervous. And then now I'm using all of those things to share with people. There's all sorts of research. There's research on self-talk, like ways to talk to yourself that research shows will make you feel more confident. And then when you feel more confident, you will be more confident and other people will perceive you as more confident. So it's like this beautiful switch that you can actually turn on. Powerful, powerful. Well, I'm hoping we'll cover some of that in some of the workshops coming up. Yeah, that's right. And speaking of that, before I do that, actually, I I wanted to ask quickly about your time with a sports psychologist. Because in our training, we have two exams that are very difficult to pass, Mm. especially nowadays. It's so competitive to get onto the training program. And so the people who are getting on have never failed an exam before in their life. Right. And now they're facing a really tough quiz and there is a failure rate. 
So for people who then go and have subsequent attempts at the exam, one of the things that I've sometimes done is referred these people to a sports psychologist. Brilliant. Because they understand that pressure and all the things. So did you find your time with sports psychologists, was that useful? Do you find that you go back and visit some of those learnings? For sure. I'm thinking back to now to what she taught us. And so part of the meta message, I suppose, is just that feeling nervous is not a bad thing. So when you feel that little, I feel like adrenaline in my chest. That's how I describe it. It manifests in people differently. But when I feel that little bit of adrenaline, she helped me and all of the figure skaters realize that that's a good thing because that's going to give you energy. And I think it's even true in an exam, right? Like you feel that little burst of adrenaline. It's okay. That's going to keep you fired up. So that was one thing. And subsequently, I've done all this research on imposter syndrome. And the truth is everybody feels it. And in fact, the people that don't, there's something wrong. Like they're bored and they're not engaged and they're not engaging. Like if they're giving a speech and they're not nervous, they're actually engaging. But the other thing that she did a lot with us was mental rehearsal. She would basically help us get into almost a meditative state. And then we would, in our own minds, close our eyes and go through our six minute program in our heads, beginning to end. And if you fell, you got up and you started your program again and you would go through your program perfectly. And we did it sometimes even with jumps. Like she would say, okay, you guys can all do a single axle. Let's go and do the biggest single axle you've ever done. But before you do it, close your eyes and do it. And so I was like, in my mind, I did a big one. And then I went out and I did the biggest single axle I had ever done. And it was like, oh my goodness. And part of it is just, if you believe it's true, then it is true. So I believed that if I did it in my head, it would happen physically and therefore it did. And I think that's pretty powerful insight. So if you believe in your head, for example, that you're going to pass the exam and of course you do the preparation, you will. Yeah. Huge amount of work there. I do have a podcast coming out soon actually for people who are taking their second or subsequent attempt at the exam. And one of the things to consider is perhaps going to see a performance coach or a sports coach or a communication coach, like really try and break down what it is you think you need to work on. A bit like the self-reflection that you went through. Yeah. Now you're reminding me of, I had to write the GMAT to get into the MBA program when I did that. And then, because I took my doctorate several years later, I had to rewrite the test. And I was quite nervous. There's a lot on the line. I wasn't applying to other schools. I was only applying to Harvard. I really wanted to get in. And even when I was studying, I was very nervous. First and foremost, you have to be prepared, right? But I started using a mantra. So my mantra was, Andrea, you're smart. Andrea, you're prepared. Andrea, you've got this. And that would calm me down because I was like, I believe that's true. And it calmed me down and it reset my mind. And then I read this book recently by a professor named Ethan Cross, who looks at self-talk and rumination. And he said, talk to yourself as if you're your best friend, right? Like, what would you say to Susie if Susie was nervous? You'd say, Susie, you're totally prepared and you're super smart. You got this. And if you talk like that to yourself, his research shows that you'll be effective in calming your nerves. I want to come back, as I said, We've talked about imposter syndrome, and I know that is the topic for our next workshop. And I thought perhaps we could just outline some of the workshops that are coming forward over the next 12 months. I think we've got the program worked out for us. I think the next one up is imposter syndrome. So what are you going to be covering in that one? So we're going to talk about the research that was done. So like I said, for me, it feels like adrenaline in my chest. People have different symptoms and it's going to be fun actually talking to doctors about what happens to you physiologically 
And then we know why it's fight or flight. Your body's amping itself up to maybe defend yourself or to go into a fight. And then we're going to talk about the research on imposter syndrome that was done anyway. And I don't want to give too much of it away, but the truth is we all have imposter syndrome. And I have a list of tips or tricks or hacks. So they're like things you can do immediately and also mindset. So things that you can remind yourself of that are very effective in overcoming imposter syndrome. And by overcoming it, I don't mean you never feel that shot of adrenaline. It's when you feel that shot of adrenaline, what are you going to think and what are you going to do? And what I like to do is share a list of many options. And the idea is hopefully one or two of the strategies will resonate with you. And then you go away with that. Great. Sounds good. We love a little toolbox of things we can draw upon. That sounds wonderful. Looking forward to that one. And then the next one, if it's anything like the podcast that I listened to that helped me get through a recent talk, Demonstrating Leadership, I'm looking forward to that one as well. I get this question a lot from people that I'm coaching and they say, my boss says that I'm technically competent and I need to start demonstrating leadership. How the heck do I do that? And so here's the thing, people have this default in their mind that leadership means being a boss to people. But leadership is so much more. It's people leadership for sure. And we will talk about that. It's also thought leadership. We will definitely talk about that in the workshop. And it's also being strategic and having initiative. So you can lead without having people reporting to you, without having an army of people reporting to you in a hierarchy. You can still be innovative or identify a goal or an objective and bring a group with you to that. I call it being strategic or using your initiative. And then the last one, I know this one is your favorite. And you know, Susie, I coach some really smart people and they're like, oh, I never thought of that. It's simply using the word lead. Sometimes I help people with their LinkedIn profiles or their resumes. And I'll say, what have you done and what's your goal? And they're like, I really want to distinguish myself on LinkedIn as a leader in the finance industry or whatever it is. And I'll go, I don't see the word lead or leader anywhere on the page. (laughs) And they're like, oh, that's true. There's so many other ways to describe yourself other than using the L word. Yeah. Just use it. (laughs) Yeah. It's not like this forbidden word. Anyway, and I also remind people, you're not just leading an army. You can also lead a meeting. You can lead a conversation. You can lead an initiative. You can lead a project. (laughs) Influencing change management. There's so many places you can take this. And I'm glad you mentioned LinkedIn. I really love looking at your LinkedIn feed and I love your emails. Will you be covering that? I know that the workshop after the demonstrating leadership is communicating with precision. Do you cover how to write those great emails? Oh gosh. Thank you for saying that. So my newsletter, Susie, has changed a lot over the last three years. When I go back and look at some of my original newsletters, I'm like, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? I had in my mind, which is I think common, that I just want to be a generous coach and share everything that I'm thinking and everything I know with the audience. And so that's kind of what it looked like. It was just a dog's breakfast. It was like, here's this fact, here's this fact, here's this thing, here's this thing you might find funny, boom, 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 boom. And I realized the more generous way to coach is to give people a really focused message. So now I think, what is the take-home message that I want them to get? And I make sure I make that really clear. Actually, this goes for podcasts as well. At the beginning, I say, here's what you're going to learn. 
And then I go through the material and then I try to summarize it. And I think that's a really important and not necessarily obvious and maybe even seemingly contradictory thing about communicating with precision is that if you can repeat yourself, sometimes your message will be more precise and more focused. I just released a podcast episode on this actually. And I say at the beginning, you tell them what you're going to tell them, then you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. And it seems like it's repeating, but actually you're helping reinforce your focused message. So it's actually more precise. Definitely. I did a public speaking course before I became president. And I think the biggest thing I got out of that was how to create my key message. We are so used to going to talks, presentations at conferences, and there's slides with a hundred words on them and this paper, that paper. My research team found this, that, and it's a very different style of communicating. Yeah. I remember I got in big trouble when I was, I think, maybe third year at Harvard and I was giving a presentation. And it was basically like telling them the paper, my hypothesis, and then design my experiments, and then the result. And I was going through it and I was into the part where I'm talking about the experiments. And one of the professors stood up and said, Andrea, what's your point? I was like, give me a minute. And I'm in my mind thinking there's a climax to the story. I'm trying to provide suspense. And he stood up again. He's like, you tell us right now what the point is or we're walking. (gasps) Oh my goodness. Yeah. But you know what? It's a great example. I mean, I was almost crying. I was so upset. But from that moment, I realized, especially in academia, you don't save a punchline. You tell them. And another podcast that I was on with this gentleman, Dave Jackson, who's a master podcaster, he said, you got to tell them where the bus is headed before they're going to get on. And that's the analogy, right? If you've got a 30 minute podcast, you want to tell them what they're going to learn. Otherwise, they're not going to listen. And if you're giving a presentation in academia, even You got to tell them what it's about before you start. Yeah. The subject line in emails. I think that's often an underused part of email. A (laughs) hundred percent. I totally agree. Yeah. My friend of mine, Jill, she's a CEO of an advertising agency. She says, speak in headlines. She said, give me the headline and I'll tell you if I want the whole article. Okay. Gosh, communicating with precision. I am looking forward to that one. We can all do a bit of work in that area. Yeah. And then we've got a few other topics, but they're for a select group of the ASA audience. So maybe just we'll listen by names. There was psychological safety, which is very important. And then we've got some work on personal branding. So again, I'm looking forward to those as well. Yeah, me too. I'm really excited. It's honestly such an honor to have this opportunity to coach. Well, first of all, such smart people who clearly, as I said, have a growth mindset, but also they're making an impact in what they do. I mean, you work in medicine and you're saving people's lives. You're helping people be stronger and healthier. And so I feel like if I'm helping you, then maybe I can help you do your job better. Well, I hope so. And look, it's been an absolute honor to be able to sit down and chat with you tonight. Thank you. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you'd like to say? I recently surpassed 100 episodes of my podcast. So I was thinking hard about the main lessons and I have three main lessons. But then I said, if I had to choose one, it is that a growth mindset will get you out of just about anything. And I think most of the people that I've met through the ASA have really clearly, it's like a self-selection thing. I'm really seeing that. But if you can be conscious of a growth mindset, and the way I define that is, I know what I know, but I'm keen to learn more. So you're confident with your knowledge and your expertise, but you are open-minded and actually keen to learn more, whether it's from other people or from books or whatever. 
And so I just want to reinforce that. And I think that can help your communication too. That is a wonderful thing to really highlight and recognize also in our membership. So thank you for bringing that to our attention. And I love it since our first workshop that you did with our ASA counselor. Yeah, that's my mantra. I think it's quickly becoming the ASA council mantra too. (laughs) Oh, good, good. That's awesome. Well, speaking of awesome, thank you once again for your time and looking forward to our next workshop. Really, really looking forward to it. Me too. Thank you so much, Susie. Well, thank you once again, Andrea, for having this great chat with me. And hopefully you, our listeners, didn't notice the technical glitches that came with recording this podcast over hotel Wi-Fi. Now, I am very excited to flag that we are hoping to organize a workshop with Andrea that will be a face-to-face one. That's right. After years of Zoom meetings, we're hoping to have a face-to-face workshop. Andrea will still be Zooming in from Canada. We're still confirming the details, but I'm hoping that it's going to be at the Combined Scientific Congress, which is being held in Wellington in October this year in 2022. So if you're interested in coming to that Congress, then please do get in and register soon as I've heard that accommodation in at least one of the hotels has already booked out. I'm looking forward to seeing you there and hopefully also at our workshop with Andrea. Otherwise, as we discussed, there are several online workshops that are planned right through until June next year. So if you can't make it to Wellington in October, I hope you'll be able to make it to one of these. They will be virtual though. They are complimentary to attend, but you do need to be a member of the Australian Society of Anesthetists. So if you're not already, then please do go ahead and join and I'll put a link to the joining form in the episode notes. Some of the workshops that Angie will be running will be hosted by our Public Practice Advisory Committee. Now to attend those, you don't need to be a member of the ASA, but you do need to be a director or a deputy director of an anaesthetic department. These workshops are for a smaller group, they're more intimate, and they're hopefully an opportunity for directors to meet and mingle. If you're interested in attending any of the workshops, then you can find more details on the ASA website. Just look for the events page. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more from Andrea, then please do visit her website or look for her podcast. It's called Talk About Talk. And of course, I'll put a link to it in the episode notes. One thing I want to add about the workshops with Andrea is that she loves having a Q&A session at the end. So I do hope you'll come with your questions about how you might communicate better. And with that, I'm looking forward to seeing you at the next workshop and having a little bit more of a discussion with you. All right, until then, I hope you're staying safe and well out there. This episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists, otherwise known as the ASA. More episodes can be found on the ASA website, asa at asa.org.au. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to receive the latest episodes. And of course, you're welcome to share them as widely as you wish. Please send any feedback to the ASA by emailing asa at asa.org.au. Music was by Mark Suss, and we hope you enjoyed listening. <laughs>